Hey, Dad, it's me. Can you hear me? Yep, gotcha. Cool. Okay, on three. One, two, three. Dad men. Dad men. <laughs> We're going to keep working on that. Uh, Why not? Welcome. You are listening to Dad Men, a podcast where me, Sally Ann Price, and my dad, Keith, who you just heard, rewatch the AMC drama Mad Men. Today, we're diving into Season 1, Episode 2, Ladies' Room. So pour yourself something festive and buckle up. Here's the AMC description of the episode, which these descriptions are pretty short, so we might, we might be adding on to these as we go. Don continues to conceal his increasingly complicated personal life. Peggy, played by Elizabeth Moss, pines for the absent Pete, who we know is a scuzzbag on his honeymoon. I added that last part. I'll also add that this is the episode where we start to learn more about Don's wife, Betty, his boss, Roger Sterling, and the office politics and dynamics of the agency Sterling Cooper and the creative team Don leads. So with that, I'm going to kick it to KP. What stood out to you as you about this episode as you rewatched it? Uh, it's interesting with the, with the name ladies room, it has to be about some ladies room scenes. And what, were, what was the conflict in each of those scenes? Certainly in the first one with uh, Betty and Mona when they're out to uh, the dinner at Toot Shore in New York City, um, there's conflict with the help as they're leaving because they're lingering in the mirror. And then the second time it's between Joan and Peggy in the office bathroom. And the third time, it's just Peggy out of disgust going in the bathroom, and there's somebody already in there crying. So every bathroom visit had its, like, angsty moment. Yeah, I love I feel like that's kind of the framing device for the episode, and I'm sure this has been written about by, by other uh, observers of the show, but that uh, you see what the, what the ladies' room means quite literally as kind of a, a quote-unquote safe space for women. Um, because it's the only place you can go where you're not going to be observed or, you know, messed with by men in some degree, um, or where you can have a private conversation with another woman. So, like, off the bat, this, you know, when we see Don and Betty at dinner with Roger and his wife, Mona, who we'll talk about her more, we love her, um, you know, Peggy, like, as they get up to excuse themselves from the table and go to the restroom, um, Peggy confides some pretty serious stuff to Mona right then, uh, as Mona's touching up her lipstick, which is this kind of intimate, you know, as we can say in this economy, uh, you know, you don't really touch up people's lipstick these days So, uh, in terms of social distancing. So um, I think you kind of see how women relate to other women in those spaces um, and also how you can observe other women who are like crying in the bathroom all the time because they've got nowhere else to go. Absolutely. Uh, I, you, met, you said Peggy at one point in your uh, last point, and I think you meant to say Betty. Bet, oh, Betty, Betty. I hate sometimes when people have names that rhymes and you mix up characters and, and you wonder if you're supposed to mix them up or not because you realize that they're all young women in the same time and place, even though their worlds are so completely different, you know, but kind of intersecting here and there. In 1960, everyone young had a last name that ended in I-E or Y. And dad, you know, my name is Sally Ann, and my mom is Barbara Jean, and my former mentor is Barbara Ann, and I'm sure there's some Sally Jeans out there, so you don't have to tell me about about uh, names that a lot of baby boomers have or things yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, you pretty much got stuck with that one. 
Uh, Dad, I want. I'm, I was dying to know what you think about um, Peggy's intro to the office, really, that we see in this episode, and like the various times people are going for lunch, and um, specifically the tour of the office that Peggy gets from uh, Paul Kinsey, the copywriter, um, because I, I think he's, you know, he obviously has some kind of a prescient, you know, foreshadowing moment because he's. Uh, he's kind of the first person who invites her to look at his copy and suggests that she might have a future in creative as a woman, uh, which hasn't occurred to her really. Um, but it's, you know, having, having worked in those kinds of offices and in the industry, I was just, I was just dying to know what you thought about that scene. Uh, for a smaller to medium sized agency, that was exactly the layout and pretty much what you would expect. Um, on the interplay, one thing about Mad Men big picture, um, it never really caught the conflict between account management and creative. And there is always conflict there. Uh, the same way I found working at uh, both Ford and Volkswagen of America to a lesser extent Chrysler, but uh, the way marketing and PR people didn't get along or there was internal strife. Um, that never played out. It seems more harmonious in Mad Men than I remember it. I remember there always being angst around that. Well, um, and that's what I love about the conversation with Paul and Peggy is he's really kind of speaking to her because she works for Don as like it's kind of an in-group conversation for people in creative, even though her function at this point isn't creative. And I think that's also what makes it kind of heartbreaking when he propositions her later um, because – um, that really seemed like, and I think because on some level it was a really genuine, uh, you know, uh, Paul and Peggy kind of relating as people who kind of work in the same part of the business now. Um, yeah. Um, true. Uh, and, and, of course, <laughs> you know, proposition, uh, Peggy, it's mm -hmm. more like Paul was all over like a cheap suit. I mean, it was oh, yeah. really... Uh, and you hate that we live in a world where you have to give the go the guy bonus points that he didn't push further. Like, don't you, like, I just hate that. I just hate that, that she was in that position. But as we know, Peggy has been and will continue to be in some uncomfortable positions with the men she works with at this agency. So. You know, it, in terms of uh, a character study on Peggy, uh, this is the episode where she reveals that uh, at some point she had grown up in Bay Ridge. <laughs> and, and we, we have manners. And and we know from later in the episode that she says that she's of Norwegian extraction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, so I, you know, I did the research because I've been to Brooklyn four times in the last two years. And sure enough, um, Bay Ridge is where the Scandinavian neighborhood was in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like 150 years ago. It just, it kind of made sense. That makes perfect sense. Um, uh, we talked about her in the in our last discussion from uh, episode one, and you posed that um, we presume she's a virgin, mm -hmm. and I, I, I and I think I take umbrage with that because she seems now in retrospect of the Pete hookup in the last and how she's carrying herself mm -hmm. in this episode as you, to your point as doors of the industry and the social atmosphere within the agency are opening to her and revealing themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't think she's as innocent as you thought. Mm -hmm. 
That's pretty fair. I think um, I think it's more drawing the line between you know virginity and innocence are often kind of uh, 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 used interchangeably. Uh, and I think I think we can probably also chalk up that her worldview. She's still kind of young and wide-eyed, but um, um, she is aware of the sexuality that's just so rampant in this office. Like you know, after they go out to this lunch, you know, Ken straight up goes in, puts his hand around her waist, and and says, "Let's go to the zoo and see what the animals are up to." Uh, and she kind of resists and walks away. And she's kind of like, "Okay, congratulations, gold star. I handled that inter interaction properly." Um, but uh, one of the funny things, too, though, is that she is so frustrated with feeling like, you know, all of the men are looking at her, presuming something about her. And Joan says, like, because, you know, you're beating them with a stick. Like, you know, they can't, they can't escape it anywhere. Like, you think you're hot shit, lady, is basically what Joan says. Like, enjoy the thrill, new girl. Oh, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think it's a good time, too, before we get away from the beginnings of the episode, just things that struck me. Being the car person, I will note the change in Don's vehicle from a 59 Oldsmobile to a 1960 upscale Buick convertible. Nice. And that's, that's definitely a step up. We know it's a primary car for him to drive to the station. And Betty, uh, as we see farther in, um, has a 57 Ford country sedan wagon that she hauls the kids around. That brought up all kinds of discussions with me with other baby boomers because we remembered that in family station wagons, they would take the door handles off like in the back of a police car so you can't escape. <laughs> and, and, you know, because you didn't want your kid pulling open a back door at speed and it made perfect sense. But that was safety before uh, seat belts. Oh, that's so the, funny. And the dealer had to do it for you. So that's what, you know, Betty's whole off-roading experience. <laughs> um, and then, of course, from a car factor for me, seeing Helen Bishop, the divorcee, moving in down the street, and that being the um, element of chatter that the, the Betty and her friends are talking about. You know, she pulls up in a 1958, 1959 VW Beetle, so we know I love that. Oh yeah, and I'm I'm excited. We are of course going to meet the character of Helen Bishop, the divorcee. Uh, I think within the next few episodes, or it might even be the next one for all I remember. Um, and I love the actress who plays her. We'll talk more about about her too. Um, but that was something I wrote down that um, you know obviously uh, this is an episode where get, we're through getting to know Don's wife Debbie, Betty in this idyllic suburban life. Um, that we're definitely meant to see her as you know the kind of quintessential. Uh, nervous housewife of the era who is privileged and who has, you know, all the appliances and, and fabulous lifestyle things she could possibly want, but who is still um, so stressed out in that the threat of, I don't know if it's the threat of having an unmarried woman in the neighborhood or if it's the the idea of what her friend says to her, you know, imagine worrying about money at, at this point in our lives and really feeling like because she's not the provider um, feeling that anxiety of like, what if something happened to Don? What if something happened to the kids? And like, what if she couldn't take care of herself that way? Um, but that that's really the um, the conversation about the divorcee, whatever that means to Betty. That's kind of the thing that trigger, triggers the, uh, I think we can call it the panic attack when she uh, uh, has her little fender bender. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, so the other thing about Betty is at the time, privileged suburban housewives were consuming phenobarbital at a phenomenal rate. Mm-hmm. It was being, I think, in the uh, parlance of the Times now, overprescribed. Mm-hmm. And uh, nervous housewives at, oh my gosh, it was like, I, I, I remember that whole phenomenon from mm-hmm. my mother's group of friends in Northville. And, you know, I think one of the things that's, again, one of the things that I ha- makes me kind of angry, but, you know, I kind of have to hold and take it, take it out and kind of look at it for what it is. Um, it's the whole thing of, you know, well, the attitude of, well, psychology is great at cocktail parties. Psychiatry is this year's candy pink stove um, that we see, of course, you know, Becky, uh, Becky, uh, Betty finally goes to see um, a psychiatrist and it's this very uh, old school, you know, lying and smoking and the person is not really talking or asking questions. Um, and then the reveal that he then calls to give a report to Don, like, as a person who consumes mental health services, uh, you know, that's horrifying for privacy reasons and, and just all sorts of things. Um, but you also see, you, you know, we hear Don say, I always thought that psychiatry, psychiatry was for people who were unhappy. And how could you be unhappy with all this? And we just know, no, 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 in the year 2020, with the benefit of hindsight, we just, we, we know exactly how that's going to go. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I did want to just mention because we moved on from the intro, but we uh, we do meet at the dinner with the wives with uh, Don and his boss Roger Sterling, played by the fabulous John Slattery, who I love, and we'll talk a lot about how much I love that guy. Um, but the uh, the character of his wife Mona uh, is played by Talia Balsam, and um, of course John Slattery and Talia Balsam are a real life married couple. Um, and I always love that, you know, we meet Mona in this scene, but one of the things that the show always does so well is that a lot of these characters, they, you know, they might disappear from the story for a season or even a few seasons, but, you know, these characters and these actors really never go too far from this world. So, um, you know, as we know, of course, we'll, we'll meet the wife, the wife Mona again. We'll get to know a lot more about that marriage and uh, about why, you know, where they're coming from. But um, I also love that we got to learn a lot more about, uh, the character of Roger Sterling in this episode. Uh, and, you know, the, oh. Cooper says, you know, I always thought, you know, Sterling was responsible for the Navy attitude around here. Like, that just says so much about who that guy is. Oh, completely. Um, one of the things that really jumps out at me uh, at, at the opening is the juxtapositioning of Roger's alcohol consumption vis-a-vis tableside Caesar. Mm-hmm. The tableside Caesar preparation reminds me of what a timeless classic that is, and yet I can't think of anyone that consumes alcohol in that kind of quantity prior to dinner. You know, <laughs> right? Uh, the sheer luxury of the this episode is kind of bookended by like nice dinners out, and you know when Betty orders the au gratin potatoes and the tomato juice to start, and they're both having cocktails like. Um, you know, I, neither you or I is a person who has a great stomach. So, you know, trying to keep up with the way people eat and drink on this show would probably kill either of us in a flash. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, but we learn a lot about Roger there, uh, you know, uh, in that he's, a, that he's a veteran, that he's a child of immense wealth and privilege who was kind of raised by nannies. Uh, you know, I just, there's 
that that guy we learned so much about that guy and i think part of it is that actor just does so much with that with that writing i love it oh john slattery is terrific we as we talk about him been aware of him for years uh going back to his earliest tv work and uh some of the other interesting things he's doing right now um I know, anyway, he's, I, oh, he's, go ahead I was just going to say one of the things I love about um, John Slattery and uh, and also his wife is that they're uh, they're both the kind of actors who you don't always see around and everything. So sometimes somebody be like, well, what's that guy doing now? I haven't seen him lately. Uh, but I think that speaks to that they're people who really only take who are very careful about what projects they take on and who've made really interesting choices. And I think so many of the actors um, at the time they came to the show. Um, really are that kind of actor, character, actor, person who, um, you know, chose this role for an interesting reason. So, And speaking of character roles, um, I'd say Midge, the downtown uh, Greenwich Village artist, had her best moment in the series by throwing the television out the window. <laughs> and also that she like pulls off the, the cool girl move, but then she laughs about it and like goes to look out the window. Like uh, you so just, that character is just so like engaging and you see, you see why Don uh, is so, you know, loves being in her presence that way. Um, I do want to ask you one question about Midge. Sure. Um, it occurred to me, we know that she's clearly, um, a, you know, a freelance visual artist or illustrator who's, uh, who Don very possibly met through legitimate work-related things, but she's also clearly this downtown hipster, uh, you know, artsy person. And I wondered a little bit, based on what we see of her, you know, that she's a little bit of a Holly Golightly kind of party girl or something. Um, is it possible, knowing what we later find out about, you know, Don and his sexual relationships with women, uh, do we think he was ever paying Midge, or do, do we think that they were just kind of having this affair? Like sometimes no, totally, of... totally just having the affair. Um, she's doing the whole downtown scene, which loosely correlates to the backdrop for uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Exactly but, the one. Um, so, so you have some huge crossover there, uh, and at uh, truly at the same time, but um, remembering at the time that. Art is being devalued, and individual artwork uh, is being pushed down to the freelance level and being replaced by photography. Mm-hmm. So, so Midge could have very well worked in an ad agency, went freelance, and and went off the off the grid a little bit. As certainly the the backdrop of the apartment she lives in downtown, and the the way the people float in and out later. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Uh, anyway, uh, that whole uh, scene that that's that would be the logical progression for me, and that's why she's doing pictures of animals and mm-hmm. doing cards for Grandmother's Day. Mm-hmm. And then you know, going off to go to a, a poetry reading or something, and you know, so that. For the social reason of so she can you know pretend to be shocked that Jack Kerouac didn't show up. <laughs> oh, exactly. And remember, mm-hmm. in um, 1960, Jack Kerouac had not yet moved to Detroit, but before he made it to any reading, you can count on the fact that he was hammered already. <laughs> That's that sounds like a lot of a lot of writers I know, even in the year 2020. 
Um, but I love, though, that I always got the sense, and, you know, we'll learn learn more about what happens with the character of Midge, and, you know, that, that goes somewhere, you know, that we might not have predicted. But I like to think that if you met Midge as an older lady, that she'd be one of those, like, really, really cool older ladies who, like, knew about everybody before they were famous and had crazy stories about everybody. Oh, for sure. Like, um, I feel like there's a there's a universe in which I would love to hang out with like old lady Midge if she if she lived to be an old lady that is but um uh I love I love so much about that character. Oh for sure. So back to Peggy, I was looking up some of the music from this episode, and basically because I didn't recognize the closing tune, and if I have it right, it's uh, Great Divide by the Cardigans. Okay. Uh, news to me, and then. Um, it, it listed a couple of the other songs, and it, it was, of course, some crooner and uh, 50s music when Peggy is in the office. And this is where, for me, it reinforces my belief that Peggy's been around the block a little bit. She lives mm-hmm. in an apartment, not at home anymore. Mm-hmm. But that um, um, that whole scene where it's just young men walking by checking her out mm-hmm. as she's at her typewriter. And I call that it's uh, uh, Peggy's it's raining men moment. <laughs> you want to, do you know what my, my first kind of real world experience of that was um, when I was in college and I went away to Rome to study abroad for a semester. So I'm in Italy and living in Rome for like, you know, four or five months, whatever that was, and uh, traveling, you know, kind of around Europe and, and North Africa a little bit. And um, that, cultural difference when you are in a culture where uh and this is to some extent this is true everywhere but you know the whole italian culture where you can't walk down a street without somebody going oh ciao bella uh you know and that's just kind of how that goes i remember coming back from a trip from paris where i'd gotten my ass grabbed on a crowded subway and was like ugh, ugh, that was so gross um, and then I was on my way back into Rome and on an escalator and somebody did like a, oh, ciao, Bella, like kind of hollered at me. And I was like, oh, I'm so, I'm so exhausted of being looked at by men. I just want to be alone. I just want to be yeah. alone. <laughs> so I think most women have that experience at some time and they're coming of age when you, you know, when you realize not just, oh, men might be interested by how I look or paying attention to me for any number of reasons, but just also feeling so fried from being looked at. So. And on the subject of being treated unfairly as a woman, let's go. <laughs> r- let's go right, like power speed, to the therapist and psychotherapist giving mm-hmm. feedback to Don, and and not to Betty. Um, she did not sign a HIPAA release form releasing that information to her husband because I, HIPAA I, was not a thing yet. I am I am here to tell you that one made my baby boomer girlfriend's head explode. As well it should, and I'm, I look forward to asking her about that one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, she had another interesting, you know, sort of overview of Mad Men because she and I have been watching it together. Yeah. And it's her first rewatch since she watched it when it was on the first time. Oh, that's it's, an interesting test audience, too. I, she said she didn't remember any of the moms in her neighborhood looking like Leave it to Beaver's mom or Betty Draper. Mm-hmm. And I said I remembered a few, and it was you saw dressed-up moms all the time growing up in Northville, but not everybody's mom looked like that all the time. I, I granted her that. So, 
Well, and then also I sometimes, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this will come up more, um, that I, of course, went to the same, like, all-girls Catholic school for a long time and that, you know, my mother uh, went there also. A lot of the women in our family have relationships with that school. Um, so that I also have that model, though, of um, – you know, older, older Catholic ladies who like dress nice for church or for, you know, ladies meetings of things or, you know, charity work or, you know, that, that generation of like, you know, proper Catholic lady. Um, there is a, a, a woman from Sacred Heart who I will not name drop right now, but I once heard one of my teachers say, well, she looks stuck up. And it was like, oh, my God, it hurt my feelings that they thought she was stuck up because I know her to be such a lovely, kind, you know, and gracious, genuine person. But she is a person whose hair is perfectly coiffed every day and who has, like, an elegant scarf around her neck. Uh, and that's just a generation of uh, lady you just don't really see. So in terms of, like, whose mom's dressed nice, uh, you know, remember the kind of moms I saw growing oh, up absolutely. in my, my educational absolutely. environment. Um let me see. Oh, I had, Dad, one thing I wanted to be sure to ask you about, uh, because you were there when this was happening, uh, we see a couple of the upper management conversations trying to about trying to woo Dick Nixon as a political client for the agency, even though Don claims not to vote, and we'll later find out why he doesn't why he doesn't vote. Uh, but what did you think about the the Dick Nixon of it all? Well, we know so much just in, from pop culture about that entire lead-in, and because where in 1960 it takes us, and Burt Cooper says something to this effect, well, Nixon's ahead in the polls, they see softness and they see areas of opportunity for Kennedy, and that his belief was that Sterling Cooper would get called in as more of a tactical, how are we going to shift the needle now here rather than a strategic, here's the way we branded Richard Nixon. And at the very same time, the way Kennedy, in what now seems like a Trump-like manner, branded his opponent in Richard Nixon, it was a nod to the 1952 anti-corruption, I'm clean, Checker's speech that Nixon delivered that it, it was he was trying to get ahead of something uh, of his uh, career being besmirched during his vetting process for vice presidency in 1952. Mm -hmm. um, so you have that going on. At the same time, the way Kennedy branded Nixon was would you buy a used car from this man? Not with a statement, but with a question. That's the, that, I feel like that's the 1960 equivalent or 19, or whatever equivalent of the, would you have a beer with that guy? Exactly. I, you know, moreover, would you trust him to buy a used car from him or would he conceal something bad about it? I think is the, that was the, the way they tried to fling the booger on Nixon from the Democratic uh, messaging camp. But that's actually what happened at the time. And then what we know from popular culture and history and the effect of television, it was the first televised debates and Nixon didn't want to wear any makeup. Kennedy was smart enough to wear makeup and come from a temperature controlled environment right under the lights and mm -hmm. prepare for it where 
even with Nixon telling the truth, he was uh, <laughs> sweating like a gigolo in church. <laughs> that was a beautiful phrase to hear my father utter just then. Thank you for that, Dad. Uh, but something else kind of funny is we talk about, um, you know, the, the presidential politics at play in this episode and indeed this season is um, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that going into my senior year of high school, when I think we can agree I was a pretty good student, um, really didn't know a lot of this political history because I think that's more a statement that, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, that um, a lot of history education you know, for a lot of people who were in school around the time I was in school, it kind of ends pretty, they kind of rush through everything after World War II. Like once they drop the bomb and World War II is over, it's like you have the last week of the semester to zip through, you know, Korea, Vietnam, the environmental movement, whatever. Um, and you really, like, I didn't start learning or digging into a lot more of, of just that era of American history until I was in college. So, uh, watching the show, I was kind of like, oh, Nixon and Kennedy. I know those people are both people who were presidents, but um, it, it probably wasn't until rewatching it later that I kind of uh, could appreciate a little more of those nuances. But even still, like, I didn't know anything. You just told me. So uh, I also want to point out for our listeners who may not have done business with my dad or be aware of my dad in the automotive context, uh, you're a guy who sells a lot of used cars. <laughs> 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 so when you talk about the would you buy a used car from that guy, uh, this is coming from a person who sells quite a lot of used cars. So and, ma- and makes so many friends in the process. Yep, and that's I think that's always a beautiful lesson of the the don't shit where you eat kind of uh, uh, community and culture that uh, has always kind of existed around cars in our family, which uh, has also enriched our viewing of the show because. Uh, one of the great things about watching TV with my dad is he generally knows uh, he can generally ID the car for accuracy, but uh, also importance or what it says about like the character choice. And, uh, um, you know, again, I think some of my friends in Chicago here don't know as much about uh, <laughs> about my background in cars because I was like, well, if I went to car shows or I was at the track, I was probably sitting in the back seat somewhere with my nose in a book. But uh, that's obviously cars are such a big part of the advertising and media we're going to see in this show. So that's just Sally. the background on boomer centric. <laughs> oh, and, and, and some background on Sally there. Let's get the record straight. Mm-hmm. While you spent plenty of time sitting in the back seat of a car, reading your book when you were doing that stuff, how many times did a track day did you say, dad, could you go ask the guy if I could ride shotgun in that? And you got to ride in some pretty awesome vehicles, I remember. I remember at the time, I, I don't remember all of the vehicles because I never had the great memory for that like you and my brother Hal have. But um, I remember that I was deemed a desirable passenger because of A, my weight class, and B, uh, I, I, I knew when to brace myself and I didn't scream because I was used to being in cars with you and my brother. Uh, I wouldn't say crazy drivers. I wouldn't want anyone to think that, but, you know, are both people who have a certain amount of experience in racing. Uh, so, people, you know, drivers I trust implicitly. So that's, that's uh, pretty funny. So that's pretty funny. And also, too, that's um, – uh, as as we get into kind of what happens with the cars in this show and the different things that are happening, um, it's, I have every intention of uh, inviting my brother to guest on this podcast. So. Oh, for sure. Heck yeah. Uh, let me see. I think that was everything on kind of on my list for the episode, but I watched it late last night, so I didn't take too many notes. Uh, anything else jump out at you that you wanted to talk about? Well, it was interesting that 
the the continued dance around Peggy, um, and it something you said in our last podcast about all of the young guys are all somewhat interchangeable, mm-hmm. and and I think that totally exists. But um, they don't stay that way for too long. I'll say and they don't stay that way. You can already see them starting to uh, uh, to see who puts their foot forward who thinks before they speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sooner or later, we have to talk about the um, um, Sal, the art director, and uh, his whole uh, sexuality. Well, and what I love, I'm glad you brought that up, because one of the things that, you know, even just in that scene where that you mentioned where Peggy is sitting at her desk, and it's like slow-mo, every man that walks by, like, looks at her, and some of them just kind of glance at her like she's nothing. Some do an appreciative, like, up-down glance. Some people, like, smile and lay it on thick. Uh, and I think what you see there is, even regardless of your sexuality, uh, but I think that we see that part of the office dynamics here is that it's kind of the that masculinity is kind of performative, you know, and the, mm-hmm. in the same way Peggy kind of has an idea of what's expected of her as a woman in this office. Uh, I think the men, too, are also very much in this, uh, you know, I love that you get to really see, like, what a pitch meeting looks like with, you know, with the copywriters and with the account guy and with the art director. Uh, and, you know, you really see how Don runs his creative team, uh, but that those are almost entirely in-group male conversations. Uh, so you definitely also get the sense that, you know, the men have have some ideas about what's expected of them in this space. And they obviously, you know, feel like that gives them license to do all sorts of things. But um, it's just such an interesting culture nowadays when you see, uh, I think that binary distinction of male-female is becoming a little less important. But to be slapped in the face with it of 1960, and this is how people are, you know, expected to behave in the office, is just like insane to me. But, you know, I'm I'm a... I'm 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 a I'm a kid here, so <laughs> so healthy amount of perspective. This isn't exactly the professional environment I I came of age, came of age in, but uh, we still see its relics here and there. Um, let me see. I'm just going to take a glance at my notes. I have such bad handwriting. I'm so bad at looking back at notes. <laughs> the other interesting juxtaposition for me was opening at dinner with Roger and Mona but ending at a more intimate dinner and then coming home and having the the twist of the psychologist giving input directly to Don as being the payoff right at the end. Well, and that's and that's also when you think about that, you just and as we get to know the character of Betty a little bit, um what's funny is that like people kind of fling at her that she's childish or having childish reactions, but it's like it's also like they're treating her like a child. They're treating her like a child, you know, for a whole lot of reasons. And she's just kind of trying to figure out why her hands are shaking because she doesn't want to be responsible for the death or dismemberment of her children, which is at its core a reasonable thing, even though she's obviously struggling with a pretty extreme amount of anxiety the way a lot of women were at that time. You know, um, in in the You Are What You Eat, um, she – is treated like a China doll and then ends up behaving like one when things are challenging for her. 
Well, I think, and I think something you so, I did write this down, something you see so clearly in this episode, like even in the episode, in the scene with the car accident, she is wearing these very fabulous plaid cigarette pants. And you, we don't know all of the backstory of these two characters, but you see loud and clear that Don is like the dashing, most attractive, most successful guy. And that she is like the ultimate former model beauty queen wife, you know, and wife and hostess and mother and all of those, all of those roles. Uh, so you really get that even though we don't know about Don's background right now, there's a lot of mystery there. Uh, but you definitely see how a lot of people would look at them and say, look at that attractive, successful couple. They're living the dream. Um, and uh, as we know, they're not quite, not quite living the dream. But I think um, something you really see here is like just how, uh, again, when we see Betty kind of being this very elegant, very beautiful, well-dressed kind of like princess of a wife. Oh, sure. And as it relates to Don, not talking about his past, every time he resisted to talk about his past, he said something that that was a deflection that said more about himself. And, you know, what's funny is that later Betty does the same thing. You know, when he says, I was raised, you know, that it was a sin of pride to go on about yourself, and he plays that kind of aw shucksy Midwestern card quite a lot. Um, but Becky says that when she's, you know, in the chair in the psychiatrist's office, she says, you know, I was raised, it's not polite to talk about yourself. And it's like, you know, that's the thing a lot of people say before <laughs> either before they either intend to talk about themselves or not talk about themselves. So. Well, with that, I think we've talked about it enough. I think we've talked about it enough, Pops. Uh, thanks for hanging out today. Absolutely. Uh, and thanks to uh, thanks to all of you for listening to our discussion of Ladies Room here on Dad Men. We wish you luck on your Mad Men journey, whatever that means for you right now. Next up, we'll revisit Season 1, Episode 3, Marriage of Figaro. Find us on Spotify or Anchor.fm. You can also hang out with us on Instagram at dad underscore men underscore pod or get in touch with one of us directly. I'm at Sally Annihilate and KP is at Boomercentric. I think that's everything. Talk to you soon, Pops. Good night, Gracie. Bye.